This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is Series 2, Episode 17, an Upstream Journey. You can find all you need to know about an upstream journey by Googling it. I would suggest you follow along as we talk with Paul throughout this podcast. So you can see the pictures and the travels and all the excitement as we are talking. The second part of the fun is going to be guessing where he is checking in from. We're going to have some little hints here and there. Don't really have a sponsor for this podcast, but I want to say it's uh, dedicated or shout out to listener Ryan. He sent me a request over Facebook to have some lengthier podcasts for him to listen to. So this one's going to go for about an hour and 35 minutes. So without further ado, Jason, splice them together and let's go on a road trip around the country. We have Paul checking in with us via Skype, and uh, he's across the pond right now in a place you'd least expect after this podcast, or maybe you would expect it. So, Paul, if you want to introduce yourself, and let's talk about an upstream journey. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Rob. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I am uh, calling in from across the pond. I just spent the last six months uh, traveling around the U.S. I left Memphis on February 19th and drove down to the Florida Keys and spent the following six months and six days traveling 28,220 miles across the United States and Canada, fly fishing and exploring threats to um, and the environment and wild fish populations, and uh, wrapped up the trip on August 25th and moved on to sort of my next journey. But really appreciate you having me on. Um, you were so instrumental in helping me get into fly fishing a couple of years ago and taught me how to tie flies and got my staring at my vice right now here, but really appreciate everything and uh, look forward to chatting with you. Yeah. So let's get this started. We'll say um, I met you first at Tidal Potomac Fly Rodders. So 
you obviously started in D.C. What made you decide to pack up and get in your car and head south? Yeah, so um, I had spent five or a little under five years living in D.C., um, most of which I spent working on Capitol Hill as a senior legislative assistant doing energy and environmental policy. And um, um, I had sort of gotten to the point where I knew I needed a change, but I wasn't quite sure what I needed. Um, and I had been looking at other jobs and just was sort of pretty disgruntled with things. Um, the politics of Washington, which I had kind of tolerated and enjoyed for a while, started to become sort of insufferable. And I, uh, to be honest, got like a little depressed and just anytime I always use the weekends to go out and fish and sort of try to rejuvenate my soul. But after a while, those trips out to the Potomac or out to the Shenandoah or out to gunpowder just weren't quite enough anymore. And I knew I needed to take some more time. So I kind of hatched this plan to spend six months on the road, fly fishing and thought uh, that would do the trick. And, and it did. So was there that one pivotal moment, like the straw that broke the camel's back, that you just were like, I can't take it anymore, I'm changing the way I live and, and my lifestyle? Yeah, so it's actually like it's that that did happen, and it's a little dramatic, to be honest, and I, um, sort of, I've written a little bit about it. But, um, yeah, so it was, this, it was one hot, muggy night in D.C. It was a June night on the summer of 2012, and it was just sort of one of those nights that's, so hot and so muggy that no matter how much, like how high you turn up the AC or how high the, or how fast the fans are creaking, you just like can't stop sticking to your sheets. And it was it was two thirty in the morning. Uh, I was restless. My body was just sort of alive with this anxious and frustrated energy. And uh, my ex girlfriend at the time, girlfriend, was sleeping next to me, and I just crawled out of bed, got onto the floor, and just typed out an email to two of my closest friends. Um, from college, both of whom are really awesome people who hold you accountable and make you do stuff. And I basically just told them, dude, I'm done. I got to get out of here. Um, and that was sent, uh, I think it was like June 14th at like 2.30 in the morning. And uh, six months later, I was, I got almost to the day, I got my first sponsorship to go on this trip. So pretty neat way, neat way that it worked out. Definitely drop names with your sponsors because that, that's part of the sponsorship deal. But we also want to know who's supporting you um, and just, you know, helping you through this, what companies are backing you. Yeah. So it, so it took six months. Um, were you typing up an itinerary? Were you drawing on maps, Google Earth? Yeah. Searching, using your D.C. networking connections to figure out where you were going to go and how you're going to get from point A to point B and everywhere in between? Yeah, sort of all those things. Um, the other thing that I did, and so sort of full disclosure, is that I, um, I, it was pretty important to me I, to have something to do on the back end of my trip. Um, I knew that if I was just on the road for six months traveling, um, the last couple months of it, I'd be really anxious because I pretty much would have blown through most of my life savings and I wouldn't have a job, and I'd be worried about what was going to come next. And so um, I actually ended up applying to grad school during that time, too, So, which is how I got over where I am now. And so the first two months or so were spent um, applying to grad school and ensuring that that kind of came through. And when, when that worked out, I really sort of jumped full force into the planning mode. But, yeah, a lot of it was spent. I mean, it was pretty neat. Um, to be honest, when I, when I started off, it was kind of this – 
all I was going to do was I just needed a fish. I just wanted to go. I wanted to fish. I didn't want to be bothered. I didn't want to have a phone where a boss was calling me or emailing me. I didn't want to have a girlfriend bugging me, asking me if I was going to be home on time for dinner. So I just wanted to spend six months just totally fishing my brains out. And um, it was actually I was on a trip to Alaska uh, by myself, and I was reading The River Why, and I was considering sort of this idea of the perfect schedule And what I realized is that for me, I wouldn't find what I needed to find if I was just fishing for six months straight. It felt a little too self-indulgent and as much of a fishing act as I am, it would, it would be a lot, a missed opportunity because I'd be missing out on so many relationships to be forged and learning things about the the places I was visiting. So, um, sort of over, that was in October and it was really in October that it kind of more more from just six months straight fishing to, hey, well, why don't I incorporate some of the environmental work that I do and um, and, and sort of bring that into the project. And so from there out, um, I found out I got into grad school in November, and I really spent – it was mostly like mid-October until December um, in, in January – uh, planning, building the website, really thinking through what I wanted to accomplish, talking to a lot of people. And um, Dan Duvall at the Orvis in uh, Clarendon was really instrumental in all of this. He was um, very, very supportive from the get-go. And um, he and I would sit down and we'd go out and grab a beer and look at maps and talk about things. But a lot of my research was sort of done. Um, some of the issues I was already pretty familiar with um, kind of all over the map, and then from there, I just sort of plotted out places that I'd always heard were incredible fly fishing destinations and sort of did everything I could to fuse that together. So we've got the itinerary down. What about getting all the gear that you needed? You're definitely on a budget, so you're getting stuff from companies. You've got, I guess, your own camping gear. What uh, what kind of car were you driving that you were going to live out of? Um, so that was sort of a late, last-minute decision. I was planning on taking, I have a Honda Civic that was back home in Memphis, and I was planning on taking that. Um, but my dad's lease for his uh, Chevy Equinox ended up expiring um, right as um, as I was about to head out on the trip, and he ended up buying that car. And so we sort of swapped cars for a little, for the six months, and he ended up getting a new car. My mom took my Civic, and I drove his Chevy Equinox. So it was actually a really awesome car for the trip um, ended up getting, I mean, I drove 28,220 miles, so gas mileage was really important. I got something like 29 miles to the gallon the whole way, was able to fit. Uh, I had, you know, six months worth of fishing gear, uh, everything that would keep you nice and warm uh, when up in Alaska and things that would keep you nice and cool down in Florida Keys. So pretty much everything that you could ever pack on a fishing trip had everything from it four weight to an eight weight and 10 weight. So, um, and I had a, I also had an inflatable kayak from advanced elements, um, got that fit in, fit in there. Great. So it was really the perfect car for that. But, um, yeah, I, so, uh, when I started, I just, I don't know. I mean, I just kind of thought like, Hey, I'm going on this trip and I'm doing these things. And it, Dan really was the one who made me think that I could get sponsorships from people and that I could work with people. And he was, so helpful. I mean, he put me right in touch with the people at Orvis, and before I knew it, uh, they had contacted me and let me know that they would be happy to help and that I'd be able to blog for them. And um, so they sent me so much incredible gear. I mean, I 
always been a fly fisherman who fished on a budget. And the day that two, you know, Helios twos with uh, with the reels and everything just set up just comes to your house. Like that's a pretty fun day. It was like Christmas, you know, in February. So. That's pretty awesome. I wonder how many people are taking notes right now. <laughs> yeah. Start emailing about a trip I'm taking for sponsorship. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, and I, I was really lucky. I had this sort of really neat nexus of um, I was able to, you know, it's just sort of like you do good things and good things come back to you. And so, uh, you know, I, had, I hadn't really, I hadn't done anything from a fly fishing standpoint to, um, to really merit uh, a sponsorship from a company like Orvis, but it was one of those situations where you know, I just spent a lot of time with Dan. He had seen how passionate I was about the sport. He had helped me countless times. Every time I would walk into the shop and need, you know, something for fly tying or, Hey, can you put this line on my reel? Or hey, I'm just not catching fish. What can you do? And, and he had seen that and he, he knew that, you know, sort of my character from how hard I worked in sport and he was willing to put his, you know, his name and his reputation behind me. And so that was, that was so helpful. And then from there, it was just really fortunate that a lot of the groups that I'd worked with while on Capitol Hill were conservation groups. And so I had inroads. I was able to, you know, bring on Trout Unlimited, uh, National Wildlife Federation, Sierra Club, Save Our Wild Salmon. And they helped introduce me to other groups like Idaho Rivers United, which I hadn't worked with before and was able to, um, I had, sort of one of those random things that uh, the American Fly Fishing Trade Association would come and lobby on the hill, and I had met some of those guys, most notably Ben Bulis, and um, I contacted him about my trip, and he put me in touch with Patagonia, and they signed on as well, and so it was just this really fortunate nexus of all of these people who I'd met really coming through and helping out, and I'm eternally grateful to all of them. So once you got everything packed in the car, where was your first stop? Uh, first stop was the Keys. Uh, I, uh, I left Memphis on February 19th. I got a later started than I would have hoped. I had to take care of some medical things and such while I still had government Cadillac health care. So uh, I had to do that and then um, hit the road on February 19th and went down to Big Pine uh, where I fished for about two weeks. What were you fishing for? Uh, Whatever was biting? Yeah. So it was, it was one of the challenges of the trip is that you're spending six months on the road. You have to be somewhat efficient as far as where you're going and traveling. You don't want to be crisscrossing the nation willy nilly. Um, and uh, so to try to develop an itinerary where you can catch fish for six months straight, where you can sleep outside comfortably um, and where you can explore interesting environmental issues was, was really a challenge. And so a lot of the places I went to wasn't ideal timing. Uh, there's just not a lot. And, and the timing for the trip, frankly, wasn't ideal. You know, I was working on a February to August timeline. It would have been a lot better to start in May and, you know, go through November. But right. I, I had the six months that I had, and I'm not going to complain about it. But uh, so I started off in the Keys, and it was just the fishing was slow. The water temps were too cool. The wind was blowing really strong, and I had never fished the salt before. And um, I hooked a couple of juvenile tarpon, which was incredible. But other than that, I didn't see one big tarpon, didn't see any bonefish, permit, anything. So 
it's a little bit of a letdown, but it was still a really neat opportunity to go down there and fish. Your travel schedule reminds me, if you read Into the Wild mm-hmm. by John Krakauer, how Chris McCandles started like migrant work sort of in Texas, like cutting wheat or something. And as the season went on, you know, he would go farther north and north, like Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, just farther north as it got warmer. And that's sort of like the same, you know, you started in the south and as things got warmer and warmer, you finally ended up farther north and west. Yeah. 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 And, uh, well, and the other challenge too was that, and it ended up being a lot bigger issue than I thought it was going to be initially being the uh, East Coaster and Southerner than I am is that I just runoff was, I mean, if you're in the mountains in May and June, it's just tough. Um, and so it really limits your options. And so things definitely slowed down a bit there and it would have been nice to be able to get somewhere where the fishing was a little bit better, but uh, it's so beautiful to be, in Colorado and in some of those places. So, but the fishing was definitely slow and limited there as well. So from Florida, Big Pine Key, you went to where next? So I worked my way up, did the Everglades, um, did Pensacola for a day or two, uh, went, and then my next big stop was um, the Gulf down in Louisiana at Grand Isle, um, bread fishing, uh, which was really neat. Um, the, the water went, the wind was howling the whole time we were there, uh, which made it pretty tough fishing and, and the water was pretty high and dirty. But, um, I, I met up with a buddy of mine, um, from college who was at University of Texas Law School and, um, we spent five days down in Grand Island. We met, uh, this really awesome redfish captain, Captain Danny, and, um, he took us to some super secret water that, like, it was, just incredible. Blindfolded you? Uh, he didn't blindfold us, but he, like, <laughs> the story. No about, cell phones with geo enabling? No, it was like, he, I, I don't even want to get too much into it, but, uh, it was like, there was an aspect of it that, like, he was, it was like three steps removed of, like, the people that he had to ask permission to allow us to, sh- to show us this place. And, like, I, I don't know, I really respect him, uh, but that aspect of, you know, people showing you your spots. And I was really fortunate to have a lot of people over the course of my trip kind of show me their secret spots. And, uh, you know, I do my best to conceal them. Uh, one of the stories I wrote was about a river that I fished uh, that, I, that I that has been dubbed the Drunk Fork, uh, and I refer to it only as that. Um, but, uh, yeah, of all the secret waters I fished, what Captain Danny showed us down there was pretty incredible. Um, and my buddy was is not a fly fisherman until I got a fly rod in his hand, but he was, he was fishing uh, bait and between the two of us, I mean, he caught a lot more than I did, but he caught just some beautiful, beautiful red fish. And I was able to hook and land a couple of them, which were, was the first like real fish that I caught in my trip. Cause otherwise the stuff that I would had been fishing down in, uh, in the keys that I've been catching were lady fish and some sea trout, but hooked into a couple really nice red fish. Um, and uh, if anybody's down there, I would I would be kill right now to be down in uh, the Gulf in the next month or two for when the big bulls come in and you can catch you know thirty pound redfish on top water. Like that would be where I'd be if I could be anywhere right now. I think and definitely give Captain Danny a call because uh, he is a unique and awesome blend of uh, 
Cajun fishing lore. So, other than the captain, you meet some pretty interesting people at campsites and places you're eating along the way. Where did you eat at like little roadside places, or are you eating freeze dried food, Chef Boyardee, ramen? Yeah, so um, my eating is, is is a bit of a problem because I have a lot of food allergies, and so uh, I wish that I could just like pull up to a gas station and get like the crappy burritos or like the hamburgers at fast food joints, but I can't eat any of that stuff. So it was kind of a perpetual challenge. I I lived on um, jerky basically the first. Um, I almost even bought a dehydrator to bring on my trip to to dehydrate meats and other stuff when I pulled up to stops, but I, I ended up <laughs> deciding that was a little too ridiculous. But uh, I before I left, my sister has a dehydrator at home, and I made like five or six pounds of turkey jerky and salmon jerky, and I ate a lot of that. Uh, and then later on, on the trip, I found this awesome jerky out west called Crave, uh, and it's really they sell it at Costco in California, and I would buy like ten pounds at a time. Uh, and I lived off that stuff as well as uh, salt and vinegar chips, wheat bins, uh, a lot of Progresso chicken and wild rice soup. Um, it was kind of funny how, like, I, I really like eating well. I cook a lot. I, I really enjoy cooking. And, and um, so it was one of the harder things to adjust to. And at the beginning of my trip, every night I would come back to camp and I would cook, you know, somewhat decent meals you know, soup and whatever, and by the end of my trip, it was, part of it was that the light, you know, up in Alaska in August, you can fish until 11, 12 o'clock at night, and so I didn't really have, whereas in the Keys, I was finishing up at 7, 7.30, so I had more time, but I would basically went from, like, setting up camp every night and making a nice meal, to by the end of the trip, I was just pulling out a handful of turkey jerky and a handful of salt and vinegar chips, uh, and then pulling out my sleeping bag <laughs> out of the back seat of my car and sleeping in the front seat in my driver's seat. So it was pretty pretty funny how that kind of morphed and how my dirt bag emerged in me over the course of the trip. Where'd you head from from Texas? Where was the next location? Um, yeah, so we did Grand Isle, and then we um, we dropped my buddy uh, Micah back in Austin. Uh, it was good timing on that front because we got to go to uh, Austin city limits for a couple of days and. We would we would go out until four o'clock in the morning and then wake up at noon and fish for the afternoon and evening and then go back out again. But after that, I skipped a lot of territory and drove out to uh, out west to Northern California, where I met up with my parents for a week and didn't do much fishing. But from there, headed up to Oregon and Washington and spent um, two weeks on the Oregon coast and in the Portland area steelheading, um, which was really neat, but incredibly unfruitful i didn't get one bite one tug anything i think i was i was definitely a little late getting there and um and then i headed to bend which was the first really successful kind of fly fishing spot that i had on my trip and um i was able to meet up uh with brian o'keefe from catch magazine and I've been put in touch with him. It's just, it's sort of a funny thing. Like the fly fishing world is so small and everybody is so nice and so helpful that it's just, you know, you meet one person and they connect you with another person and another person. So this guy who is, is now, I mean, these people are all now what I consider close friends, but this guy, Josh Preston, who's at the time a freelance writer for, wrote for the Drake and he's, he's done some really neat profiles on artists like Josh Udison and, and some other folks. And, uh, 
he emailed me saying like, hey, I just heard about your trip. If there's anything I can do to help, you know, at some point I'd love to write a story about you. And he put me in touch with Brian Husky of Doc of the Drake's fame. And I was talking to Husky, who's from Oregon, and I said, hey, you know, I'm looking to do a couple of days of trout fishing. I need a break from the steelheading because I'm not hooking into anything, and I just need to get a tug. And uh, he said, well, go to Ben. Call Brian O'Keefe. And so I was like, all right. So he gave me his number, and I called him. And I just said, like, hey, you know, I'm coming to town. This is what I'm doing. I'd love to meet up with you and, and buy a beer, buy you a beer. And he would have none of that. Like, <laughs> He offered to let me crash with him. He took me out two days fishing. He, he connected me with all of his friends through the Ben Classic Club. Like you, you won't find a nicer, more helpful guy than Brian. And uh, it, that was really just an incredible opportunity to spend, you know, two days fishing and four days hanging out with a guy who's one of the best fly fishermen anywhere around, and arguably the best fly fishing photographer anywhere. And uh, just filled with endless stories and endless appreciation for for everybody and in the fly fishing world i'm gonna say your uh social media pictures really picked up around bend yeah that's when i started seeing just crazy looking trout big ones spotted ones striped ones every color and uh, was brian taking those pictures for you no 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 I, those were all mine okay um, he took he took a couple and it was actually pretty neat. Um, in the second to last edition, uh, issue of Catch Magazine, um, he did a home waters piece on uh, the Crooked River, which is this beautiful canyon river. It's one of the prettiest rivers that I fished. Um, and the the cover shot of that section is a uh, you wouldn't I mean it's a it's a from way up high above the canyon, but it's actually a picture of me uh, nymphing through this one section, but. Um, yeah, it was, it was rough because, you know, and, and that's sort of the downside of all of the, the sponsorship side, which is like, yeah, it's incredible and you get great gear and I'm not complaining about it at all, but there is a pressure involved with it to produce. And especially coming from somebody who hadn't really produced anything in the past and was totally new to this world, it was, it was rough being out in, down in the Keys and down in the Gulf and, and out west and uh, steelheading and not catching anything because I kept feeling that I was writing all these stories about these fisheries and I didn't have any pictures of fish and I didn't have any stories to tell really about, you know, great experiences. And it's hard because you, you see all of this stuff online from, you know, all of these videos and photos and blog entries of these epic days and epic times. And if it's hard to separate the fact that that's not an everyday occurrence. That's not something that happens over a course of three days or five days fishing somewhere. That's, that's something that happens over, you know, a month or an entire fishing season. And so it, 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 it was a tough thing to wrap my head around it, but you're right in saying that Oregon was bent was really the turning point where I went, you know, I caught more fish in two days hanging out with Brian O'Keefe than in the two months I caught prior to that. So. I know from experience when we were shooting urban lines last year, I didn't catch a single fish in probably seven or eight outings. The one fish I caught was a like a three and a half foot, four foot gar, and I don't think that Jeremy was even filming when that happened. So, yeah, it just they just don't like the camera. No, and you know, I mean, part of it was a timing thing. Um, you know, part of it was it was new. Um, you know, I'm a pretty new fly fisherman. I've I've only been fly fishing for two and a half years. And uh, not even 
I started fly fishing in August of 2011. So, you know, I never fished the salt before. I had never really fished steelhead before. I fished steelhead for one day prior to that. And so you're out there on your own and, and there's an element of momentum that you get with these trips. Um, you, the longer you're on the road, the more connections you make, the easier things become. And so, um, you know, when I was down in Florida, I didn't have a lot of great connections. Dan Duvall set me up with this guy, Gordy Hill, who was probably the most incredible guy I've ever met. I mean, he was a fly fishing saltwater pioneer back in like the 1950s and 60s. And he was the one who really, uh, like, brought tarpon fishing onto the map. And he's this incredibly brilliant doctor who knows seemingly everything about everything. And at the age of 83, still insisted on pulling me around the flats all day. You know, he gets out, he's 83 years old, and he gets out, and he, the day before I got there, he caught a 75-pound tarpon by himself. Hooked it, landed it, everything by himself. And, uh, you know, I went fishing with him, and we had an, just a great day on the water. But, you know, we saw, or he saw one fish, and by the time he saw him, it was already long gone. So it just wasn't the most productive fishing, but it was still a great day and a great connection. But the longer I was on the road, the more connections like that I was able to make, which makes the fishing a lot easier because you're going somewhere and you're getting some inside information. Um, you're getting shown what spots to go to. You're being shown what techniques are most effective. And uh, it goes a long way in helping to catch fish. So you definitely learn different techniques in each situation. And it's like ecosystem, fresh versus salt, mountain versus street, like ocean running steelhead. And um, you definitely got a whole education out of this. Yeah. I mean, one of the really neat things is that I learned – so much on this trip and it was a really neat opportunity to go from being like a pretty average you know beginner fly fisherman to i'm by no means a great fly fisherman at this point but you can put me in most situations and i know what to do because i've fished a lot of places for a lot of different things i may not catch something but i'm not a total idiot out on the water anymore you know a lot of this i've, I've done everything from you know, fishing from tarp for tarpon to fishing for salmon in Alaska to steelhead in British Columbia, you know, to high mountain trout to small stream trout to, you know, big river streamer fishing. I mean, all of that stuff. Um, and it's been a really neat educational experience because, you know, I have, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's kind of funny because it kind of parallels, you know, my experience on Capitol Hill, which is that, you know, in the job that I had, everything was breadth and not depth. You were, you know, a mile wide and two feet deep. And in some regards, that's the way I am with fly fishing now as well. Um, I'm not an expert at everything. I'm kind of a jack of all trades and I can get out there and, and do most things. I can, you know, I know a lot of techniques and I picked up a lot of really interesting tips from people along the way. Any particular patterns that you found were more effective than others throughout this journey? Uh, the San Juan worm. Nice. <laughs> I know you tie up an awesome little rendition of it. Um, but yeah, the, the San Juan worm works a lot. In some cases, like, you know, there was one day in particular where I had been fishing the San Juan for like a couple of weeks and having great luck. 
Like, and I went out on the, I was on the Provo in Utah, and I finished a San Juan on top with like a size 22 purple midge below. And I kept hooking fish on the midge and didn't catch anything on the San Juan. But other than that, like, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty incredible how well that fly works. So when I worked in Breckenridge, we would sit there, watch TV, and just crank out inch long bubblegum pink ones. And people would come and buy like two, three dozen at a time. Yeah, that fly is just, it's nuts. So simple, but it's not like dunking an earthworm in. There's really aquatic annelids that live in the water and fish eat them. Yeah. It's a big, juicy morsel. Yeah, and, and I, I picked up some cool little variations on it. Um, one that I learned in Colorado where you tie um, basically two different strands of it with a big bead in the middle that kind of simulates mm-hmm. that. And um, it also adds a little bit of flash to it. And I found in some circumstances, especially in sort of darker off-color water, that that, that particular pattern worked really well. Did you tie in with, like, little loops on them? Uh, that was pretty big when it worked out west. You know, I, I know in time with loops, but sometimes I would um, – there was another sort of version of that same pattern where you'd have the bead in the middle, but you would put the uh, – you'd put – the uh, chenille over the bead, and so you would have that hump as well. Mm-hmm. So where did you go from Bend, Oregon? Uh, from Bend, I headed up to uh, Seattle area where I met up with another friend of mine, and we spent three days out on the Olympic National uh, out near Olympic National Park, uh, fishing for sea run cuts and steelhead. Didn't see one fish rise, one fish roll, one fish in the water, no fish anywhere. So it was a, uh, I thought when I hit my stride and bend and things would take a turn for the better. And uh, Washington was sort of a harsh bring back to the uh, fishless reality that I had kind of been living in for a month or two prior to that. And so, you know, I went out to Mount Rushmore in college. Mm-hmm. I never saw any Mount Rushmore, so I still am convinced there's no Mount Rushmore. Maybe uh, people are yanking your chain and having you fish rivers that have no fish in them. Well, it's, you know, I so I on my way back, I stopped and I'm, I hung out with uh, Dave McCoy, who is a Patagonia fly fishing ambassador, and he runs the Patagonia fly fishing club. And um, we had, um, he had been really helpful for me, and I posted some stuff along the way. And I was sort of coming back through the Seattle area, and I just wanted to stop in and say hello. And um, when we were talking about it, I mean, and this is a guy who runs Emerald Water Anglers. It's a, that's a great. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with him at all? Yeah, he got Orvis Endorsed Guide 2011. Okay. 2011 or 20, yeah, I want to say 2011, he got Orvis Endorsed Guide of the Year. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't have a chance to fish with him, but it was kind of funny. I mean, it just sort of goes to show you, like, how fun the fly fishing community is, which is I pulled into Seattle, and I really, like, I was booking at home because I had, at that point, it was Wednesday, and I needed to be in Memphis on Sunday. And, uh, I was like planning on spending an hour or two, you know, having beer with him or whatever and just saying thank you. And then I was going to hit the road and start cruising home. And I, I met him at his house and we, uh, I ended up staying up with him until like three o'clock in the morning, uh, hanging out, drinking and just talking and looking at each other's photographs and just talking about all the really neat stuff going on in the fly fishing world and in the conservation world and just had an, an absolute blast with him. And such a nice guy. But during the course of the conversation, I mean, he just really um, 
ripped on the, you know, Washington Department of Fish and Game or whatever they are out there for just kind of being grossly inept at uh, managing their fisheries. I didn't know this until I talked to him, but um, you can still kill wild steelhead in Washington. You can harvest them. Yeah, they were selling them at the market, or the, the one they throw the fish at, at the yeah. pike place. Well, a lot of the big commercial ones go from, from like, they're from the, the native tribes out there who have uh, a big, uh, they have their rights to, to net fish, which is one thing. But just your average, like, weekend warrior can go out there and he can hook a wild steelhead and bonk it and take it home for dinner. That's no good. Only take the ones with the adipose fins clipped. Yeah, if it's a hatchery fish, bonk away. But it's just, I mean, so there's just Washington, there's just not a lot of fish there. It's, it's a really poorly managed fishery from some of the folks that I talked to there. And it's it's really sad because it had it has so much potential. And it has, I mean, the Columbia River Basin, which, you know, sort of flows through that whole state, it was once one of the most prolific salmon runs in the world, and now they hardly have any wild salmon that go through there. They have a small number of hatchery fish, but that's about it. And a lot of the trout fishing is down, and steelhead numbers are just absolutely, you know, deplorable compared to their historic levels. And so um, part of it was that, yeah, uh, I may not have gotten the best information from some of the people that I talked to, but a large part of it is also that the fishery there is a, is a far stretch from what it could be. In addition to the Washington State water issues, what other environmental stuff did you learn about on the trip? Yeah, so much. Um, I mean, and it's it's at times it was really empowering because you meet these people and they're doing such incredible work and and you just you feel good about things. And at other times it was sort of you hear these stories and you just feel you know pretty hopeless. Uh, I just had a story that was actually uh, published today in the Orvis blog about um, this project in particular that I, don't, I just I can't even wrap my head around how horrible it is, uh, which is this proposed Chewitna mine. It's a project that somehow has kind of flown under the conservation radar. If you're up in Alaska, people know about it, and you'll see Chewitna bumper stickers and things like that. They are exactly the same as the Pebble Mine bumper sticker that I'm sure you've seen with the red circle around it and the cross through it, mm-hmm. uh, apparently, or the slash through it. Apparently, according to one of the guys I talked to, that was actually a Chewitna mine sticker first, and then Pebble sort of took over that. But uh, it's a project that's been around for a while, but outside of Alaska, nobody knows about it. It's a uh, proposed coal strip mine. The coal, the quality of the coal is so bad that there's no market for it anywhere in the U.S. There's no market for it anywhere in the developed world. You have to ship, it's all getting shipped off to Asia. I mean, and not even to like countries with high, I mean, the lowest standards for coal bearing, uh, for coal burning. And so this coal is all being shipped out, it would all be shipped over to Asia. Uh, and it's this huge strip mine. It would be the largest coal strip mine in Alaska and the first one to go through a salmon stream. So they're literally going to dig up 350 feet down through a salmon stream 11 miles and destroy an 11-mile stretch of one of the most prolific wild salmon rivers anywhere in the world. I don't understand how people will go for the one-time cheap amount of money with all these catastrophic consequences, yet the fish and the environment are worth more in the long run for tourism and 
there's other things. It's I I don't get it. Yeah, and I don't understand how people think that way. Well, and then the thing too is that there was a study that was done. I mean, forget the intrinsic value of wild salmon and wild places. I mean, this is one of the really this town that that the, that is right near Chuitna. I mean, they have. 17 to 21 full-time residents. I mean, it's like a tiny little town. I mean, it is what is the epitome of what you think of when you think of remote Alaska. Yeah, it's only a 40-minute flight from Anchorage. And, uh, I mean, they did, they've done economic studies of it, and they've shown that for every dollar generated for the state and things like royalties and taxes and job creation, there's $5.6 in losses in you know, environmental degradation and things like that and, and tourism loss. And so you have, you know, something that makes no sense on paper from an economic standpoint. And that's when you're not even factoring in all of the negative things like destroying wild and pristine places and some of the last vestiges of wild salmon anywhere on the planet. And salmon is the basis of the entire ecosystem. You take that out. You take everything out. Right, and I mean, beyond just digging through the salmon stream, I mean, they're going to be pumping millions of gallons of water through this whole watershed, and it's going to absolutely destroy the wetland areas, which are critical habitat for bears, fox, moose, um, upland bird games, ducks, I mean, all of that stuff. So, I mean, it's you're, you're wiping out this entire ecosystem in the process. And um, so, I mean, it's a really deplorable project on on so many levels and nobody knows about it nobody's talking about it and so um actually after i I get off with you here i'm gonna have a conversation with my my friend up there who i made uh sam weiss who's the communications director for this organization called alaskans first that's uh working to sort of lead the campaign against chuitna but i mean it's just amazing that this has flown under the radar for so long i mean and you start the more you travel around i mean chuitna is sort of is unique as far as it's how unprecedented it is in Alaska um, and the, the amount of damage it can do to such an important resource. But there's a lot of really scary things going on everywhere, and fly fishermen need to become more active and, and engaged with those those battles because our sport wouldn't exist if it weren't for these waters and the fish that swim in them, and um, they're in danger, a lot of them. I was pretty surprised we had the... IFTD and ICAST in Las Vegas this year, mm-hmm. where all of fishing bases around fresh, clean water, or salt water, I should say, and we're in this sort of made-up town that just, it's a waste of electricity and water. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that is definitely funny, and I, I went through Vegas briefly on my trip, and, uh, you know, I, I'm i not a Vegas guy, and it, it's sort of is a little antithetical to everything I believe in, um, considering how much of I mean, it is the epitome of sort of uh, waste as far as and and poor planning. I mean, the idea that you build this you know this huge city that that requires so much energy, that requires so much water in a desert, um, and all the food that gets just goes in and out, just the food waste there is astronomic yeah yeah so i uh I, I drove through there on my way to los angeles and was planning on like spending the night you know there, like hanging out and just checking it out because i'd never been there before uh and i ended up grabbing a chipotle burrito <laughs> and hitting the road i was there for like 40 minutes so 
Yeah, it's a weird place. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of friends who go there and they like it and they have fun, so I'm not going to hate on it too badly, but it's just, it was hard to go and do a trip that was so uh, simple in so many ways, living out of your car, sleeping in your car, sleeping in a tent. You know, I had spent the previous three days before arriving there in Zion National Park with two good buddies of mine from college, you know, hiking and just spending this time in this incredibly beautiful and serene wilderness. And then to go from that to the strip was a little bit of a harsh turn. Do you get any uh, favorite craft brews on your trip? Anything that you would, you're definitely missing over the pond, but you got the the good stuff though. You got the, the real Guinness. Yeah. But you run in any like real, just good craft breweries that you're never going to find unless you do a trip like this. Um, yeah, I mean, there were some, um, there's a, there's brewery, uh, I'm, I'm a total sucker for fish marketing. Like if a beer has a fish on it, I will buy it. Um, and so there's one, uh, beer called Steelhead Alley based out of Humboldt, California that I love. And they have, uh, I think it's a, it's either an American pale or extra pale or I can't remember right now, but it's my, it's incredible beer. And it's got steelhead, my favorite fish, on the front. So how could I not want to drink with those? So uh, that was a great one. Um, and then I had so many good, like, small – I mean, Bend is such a hotbed of microbrews and um, Portland as well that I had so many. I can't even remember the names, frankly, of any of them. But yeah, I, means it was a good evening for you. Yeah, yeah. You drank them and you, you forget. <laughs> They did their job. Yes, yes, yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, uh, so I, the, one of the, you know, the harder things was, you know, you were out in some of these places and I didn't have time to get, or excuse me, the space to like carry a big cooler in the back of my car. So it was so loaded up and ice was such a, such a luxury that I didn't really, you know, drink too much beer out on the road. It was mostly drinking beer when I came into towns at microbreweries and such. Otherwise, I would have my, my whiskey or bourbon sort of handy when need be. What did you do with the the facial hair situation? It was definitely, you know, turned into uh, Duck Dynasty a little bit, <laughs> following you on Instagram. Yeah, so uh, it was uh, six months of no haircut. I didn't get my hair cut, and I didn't get it cut like a month or two before I left. So the hair got pretty long and ridiculous. The beard, um, especially early on, I trimmed a couple of times. And a couple of times I had to go to things where I, I needed to look somewhat presentable, and so I would shape the beard up. But I think I went probably the last maybe two or three months without trimming at all. And I'm not I'm not great on the facial hair department anyway. It generally grows pretty slow and isn't the best coverage anywhere. I was just <laughs> before I uh, I got on the Skype call with you, a friend of mine sent me the highlights uh, from the uh, National Beard and Mustache Championship. I saw some of those pictures. <laughs> that is just bizarre. It's incredible. It was actually kind of funny because one of my uh, my friends from D.C., her brother, finished number eight. He was the one, uh, or he finished second in one competition. And on this, uh, was it Twisted Sifter? Uh, yeah, it's a great site. Yeah, so he was the, he's the number eight guy with like these awesome mutton chops. But that's my uh, my friend's brother. So, uh, but I, it, I I'm looking at these, and you know, my facial hair was pretty deplorable comparatively. But uh, it got pretty pretty. Pretty Alaskan. By the time I, I left Alaska, people were just treating me like a local, so that was kind of nice. 
You're definitely starting to look like our uh, Orthodox Jewish friends that, that run the Chabad house at Ohio State. Yeah, I definitely could have rocked some serious payas if I wanted to. I ended up taking uh, two haircuts to, to get my, my hair down to the level that would sort of be acceptable for the society that I'm living in now. I had the first haircut that I got when I got home left me with a pompadour and a mullet, so it wasn't quite the look I was going for. There's a guy in the World Beard Championships looks like Colonel Sanders. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Alaska, everything is, it's cracked up to be? It is, and it isn't. So um, I love Alaska. It's It's an incredible place. I mean, some of my favorite photos that I took from my trip, I have a friend of mine works in Anchorage. He moved up there. He was a guy that I worked on Capitol Hill with. And I stayed with him while I was up there. And some of my favorite pictures and some of the most beautiful places I visited were a legitimate 20-minute drive from downtown Anchorage that we would go to after work. Um, In that regard, it's absolutely spectacular. But I do have mixed emotions about the fishing there. Um, I had been there before. I had been to Kenai in October of the prior year, uh, October 2012. And I was there by myself for a week, and I caught some incredible fish. I mean, I hooked into two fish that were legitimate 30-inch rainbow trout. Um, Didn't land either of them, but there are not many places in the world that you can go where that's possible. Um, If you've got the money to do remote fly-out, then, yeah, Alaska's your place. There's so much wilderness to explore. But if you're on a budget... It's not where I would recommend going, only because to access it through it's it's really heavily pressured now, and the main access that you would get if you're on your own and not flying out is through the road system. And so I went during a non sort of trout high times. Um, the, the King Run was really bad this year, um, and continues apparently to get worse and worse. Um, they're reaching historic lows, which is very unnerving, but. Um, as a result of that, the the, uh, the trout fishing wasn't nearly what it would be early on in the season. And um, so I did a little bit of trout fishing, but the, the kings weren't there and dropping beads, which is how you fish for them. It's, it's a totally different way to fish than anywhere else. It's, it's really kind of specialized in that you're, you're fishing these beads, these egg beads, and a lot of times with, you know, a 14-foot leader on. Um, and so it's, it's a, and, and how you spot fish and where you find fish is totally different because they're always tucked in behind the salmon. They're not in the bends and the curves and the seams that you would think they would be if you were just fishing a normal trout stream. So it's a big adjustment, um, to go through. It's not that hard. It's just a different way to fish for them that it takes a, a day or two to get adjusted to. But, um, so I was there during the height of the sockeye run, um, which is not a great thing for a fly fisherman because it's much more snagging than it is fishing because sockeye won't take flies. And so it was actually really neat because I was able to meet up with my old fishing buddy from D.C., uh, Dave Constantine, who I met through TPFR. And uh, he was just happened to be down in Soldatna visiting family there and fishing. And so I, I went down to Soldatna, and I fished the lower stretch of the Kenai with him. Fishing also being a strong word, uh, doing the Kenai flip or snatching for a sockeye, uh, which was an interesting cultural experience. Um, 
But, uh, I mean, if you're going to go to Alaska and you want to do it on the cheap, the way to go is to go like I did in September or October when you can get out where it's not that crowded, where you can get into big trout and big dollies that are eating peats. Um, that's the way to really do it. I wouldn't recommend going to uh, like Anchorage area otherwise, just because it was the most crowded place that I fished during my whole trip, even though it was the most remote in many ways. Now the dollies, people complain that they're catching and there's beautifully colored fish that are like, what, four to six pounds? And you catch them because they're eating all the eggs and they're higher up in the water column than the rainbows? So people complain that they're catching these awesomely beautiful fat fish that are eating their flies or bees before they can get to the bigger fish below. And I was like, man, that's, I really wouldn't, <laughs> maybe if I go there, I would complain, but hearing about that, yeah. it's not something I would, you know, so lose sleep over. I am a huge Dolly Varden fan, and so you're talking to the right guy, because the second best fish I've ever caught, or my second favorite fish I've ever caught in my whole life was a Dolly Varden. And it was when I was um, on the Kenai last October. And it was kind of a slow day, um, and it had been a sort of slow start to the trip. Um, it had taken me a little while to get the hang of things. And um, I'd gone out the day before with a guide and had a really good day, and I was starting to feel a little bit more success. But it was just a slow day on the river. Even the locals I was fishing with was, you know, were sort of complaining about how slow it was. And, um, you know, it's, it's you're nymphing, and you're nymphing with a lot of split shot and heavy stuff. And so you're kind of constantly getting snagged on the bottom. And uh, which always leads me to, you know, having very lazy hook sets. And so I, I added an extra weight on because I thought maybe I wasn't getting deep enough because I hadn't been catching anything. And I cast it out like three feet farther into the seam that I've been working. And, you know, it's floating along, floating along. When it gets parallel to me, it just dives down. And I do sort of this lazy hook set. And this fish just comes exploding out of the water, takes up, takes off upstream for about 30 yards realizes what it's doing, what it's doing is going the wrong direction, and it just beelined it straight downstream. And it took me about five or six minutes to land this fish. It ran me about a legitimate 400 to 500 yards downstream. And it was a 20-inch, you know, football-shaped dolly. Using uh, the Helios 2 8-weight, maybe a switch rod? Uh, no, it was this was... Prior to my Orvis endorsement, I was fishing a uh, TFO 8-weight uh, BDK with the Lampson Lightspeed Reel. But, I mean, it took me forever to land this thing. And, you know, I was it was the most, it was the first time that I'd ever really been taken on a run by a fish. And, um, you, know, it was, you know, coming from D.C., you don't really use your reel that much. You, most of the stuff that you catch, even the big stuff, you can strip in. And before I know it, you know, I'm 200 feet deep into my backing, and I'm running with my rod straight up over my head. I'd only seen this in videos. I'd never done it. I'd never seen anybody do it. And I'm just running down river, reeling and chasing this thing, you know, tripping and falling all along the way. And I landed this thing, and my heart was just racing. And it was so much fun. And I'll always remember that fish because it was such a beautiful wild fish and such an incredible wild fishery. And it was the first run that I ever went on, and it was because of a dolly. And I caught trout, you know, that were that big or bigger that didn't give me near the fight that those did. So I I love dolly. I mean, they're great fish. I just had a, my Sam, 
my friend from the Chewitna project, he just emailed me a picture of just a monster hog dolly that he caught. And it's this beautiful sort of metallic graphite gray color with these just bright red spots on it and such a pretty fish. I mean, I, I don't know how anybody could ever complain about catching one of those. And you know uh, Lucas from TPFR? Yeah. Young Lucas? Now, he's claimed to have caught and landed Dolly Varden in Rock Creek, which runs through Washington, D.C. Any uh, any truth to that that you might have any information about? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, how anything, frankly, <laughs> lives in Rock Creek is beyond <laughs> me. I, You know, when we did that whole, like, steps to the... Uh, to the fishery, like how many steps it would take for you to walk and catch a fish. Yeah. Yeah. So I tried to go down there and I got down there and it was just, I didn't go there at the, I mean, it was a, a not optimal time to be there, but it was just, I mean, I used to go there all the time because I had a dog and we had taken there, but I mean, the thing was just flooded with trash everywhere. It smelled like crap literally because there was crap flooding in the river. And I mean, I, I know there are fish there and people fish it and I mean, I'm all for, you know, fish where you are, but, um, it's just really unfortunate. And actually when I, when I was applying to grad school, I started off by talking about Rock Creek cause I'm, I'm studying environmental resource management and water resource management and Rock Creek is, you know, back in the day from the stories I heard, it used to be one of the best smallmouth fisheries anywhere around. And, uh, it's just the epitome of what a beautiful, freestone streams should look like with these great runs and riffles and pools and these big boulders and places for fish to hang out. And, but it's just been absolutely ruined. And, and that's what I talked about at the beginning of my application is how, you know, I lived a 10 minute walk from this incredible stream, but I never, I never opted to fish it because I'd always go there and it was, you know, you didn't want to wait in it. You didn't want to walk in it. And, you know, I'd always end up, going somewhere else. And it's such a great example of how an urban stream has been absolutely degraded by uh, poor management strategies. Yeah, absolutely. And it had brook trout, wild brook trout, you know, 200 years ago, but yeah. killed them all off with the urban sprawl and urbanization of the area. Yeah. I mean, and I, I say that and it is still such a treasure to have Rock Creek and that beautiful park in the middle of the city. It was mm, such an incredible resource for me when I needed to get out. I didn't have the time to get out in the countryside, just to be able to go walk, you know, my dog through there and go hike through there. And, you know, occasionally I did fish. I never did catch anything, but um, it's just, it's a, it's a sad example of, you know, a, a story of what could have been as opposed to what it is now. Exactly. Yeah. It's like four mile run in, in uh, Arlington, Alexandria. It's just full of litter. I mean, there's blue crabs and redfish that come up there in the summers. It's not that hard to put, you know, a couple of booms across and keep all the stuff from floating in, but yeah. no one wants to do it. Well, and you've caught, I've seen photos, you caught huge stripers in there, right? Stripers, carp. I mean, there's goldfish, redfish. There's, yeah, there's wild tilapia <laughs> that were living there last year. Just, I mean, you know, I was talking to the client about why can't someone just get a bunch of bushels of oysters and just put them under like the Route 1 bridges and let them just filter all the water as it comes in and out. And not for consumption, but just to have them in the water to help filter. Yeah. I don't know. Budgets, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I can't speak to the politics and things on my that hasn't happened, but it is really a shame. I, um, I, at one point, my, I took my ex-girlfriend out there and 
I was. Did she get the dog? You said the dog passed him. Did she? <laughs> yes, it was. You broke up with her and the dog. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'll I'll leave it at that without getting <laughs> too much uh, too much detail there. But yeah, she she brought the dog into the relationship, so she kept the dog, uh, which was one of the well, I'll just say it was by far the worst part of the breakup. Uh, she's not going to be listening to your podcast. So I don't have to worry too much. Uh, it was he was a, just an awesome awesome dog worst fishing dog ever because he couldn't stay out of the water it was this black lab but we would take him you know i was i would always sort of put it under the guise of like hey let's take a walk someplace that i wanted ex- to explore from fly fishing and we'd go and we'd watch and i could that way i could scout the water and we took the dog down there and we went down there in some afternoon and it was just so littered i mean with, with trash everywhere and you know, it smelled, I think it was right there, it was some minor oil spill or something that happened, and the whole place just smelled like crude oil, and it was just so sad that she literally was like, can we please go? Like, wow. it was depressing. Uh, at least your dog won't go with you. Dr. Jones, is he's got his little handkerchief with puppies on it. <laughs> he's on a Hello Kitty sofa right now. <laughs> um, he won't even put a toe in the water, so uh, I can't even get him. He went on the drift boat once and shivered for an hour, and I, Went back home with him. Well, yeah, Charlie's problem was that Charlie couldn't stay out of the water. And he he was really good off a leash, always. But, like, one time we took him to the gunpowder. And, uh, like, my my time for fishing was limited, partially, largely because of my job and also partially because of that relationship. And uh, we would, like, go somewhere, and I she would go and hike with the dog for three or four hours, and i get to fish. And... Um, invariably like she'd let him like she'd always take him on the leash when she was walking into the park because he would immediately just come and jump into the water and spook all the fish but you know she'd always walk like 300 yards down and let him off the leash but half the time like even if you get like a half mile down he would just come beelining just straight down the stream right towards the path for me and just run into the water and spook everything around i was already having a hard enough time catching fish back in those days and then he would just scare everything so uh he was the worst fishing dog and occasionally we would like try to tie him up and leave him there just like sitting on the side of the river just so that i could fish or like you know show him art or something and he would just go ape so wasn't a good fishing dog but otherwise pretty awesome dog a good outdoorsy dog he was responsible for me seeing my first moose he spotted and and pointed to him even though he's not a pointer up in nova scotia so been all over. Yeah. So, so how saying you've been all over? How has driving? So you've been to Nova Scotia. You went to Alaska previous, but how is driving from DC to the Keys to Alaska changed your life? Uh, totally. I mean, and, and listener Ryan, what he requested a long podcast, so don't worry if this goes long. All right. Um. Yeah. So first, I love the road. I love the open road. I mean. I've always enjoyed road trips. I've always enjoyed driving places. It's just a unique way to see the country, the world. You know, time slows down, um, especially when you're talking about doing drives. Like some of the, I mean, I did, you know, 42-hour drive in basically two and a half days, driving from Fort McMurray, Alberta to Anchorage. Um, It got worse on the way back as far as, some of the times these drives, but when you've got that much time and you're driving through places like the Yukon or British Columbia or Alaska, I mean, 
it's just so incredible to see so much raw beauty and it's such a reminder of the gifts that we have as far as what's out there and that's only what you're seeing from the road it's such a small sliver and cross section and it's often not the most beautiful parts because they put the roads in the flat easy places that you can get through they're not putting it through high mountain passes and so there was one night in particular um where i was so i met my dad um so, so also fun road stories um i blew out the engine of my car in the yukon uh which fortunately I didn't realize until I got up to Anchorage, uh, which sort of is a whole funny story in terms of getting that fixed. But um, I was driving in a rental car to meet my dad uh, down in Juneau. He flew in uh, to do some salmon fishing with me and um, got a, a much later start than I wanted to because of all the rental car drama. And um, I was driving and it's like a, it's like a 16-hour drive, I think, from Anchorage down to Haines, and then you take the ferry to Juneau. And I left at, like, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had, like, a 9 a.m. ferry. And so I'm driving through the Yukon, and just this pitch-black night with stars everywhere for two hours. I mean, on the main highway, but I drove for two hours without seeing another car in either direction. And I pulled over, and I stopped for gas. And I still didn't see another car drive by. Uh, it's just a pretty neat feeling to be that out there and that away from civilization. And so I, I love I, that. I just pulled up Fort McMurray yeah. on Google Maps. I have to scroll out to the second to the widest view on my monitor in order to be able to see Alaska. <laughs> That's not close. No, I think it was, um, it was far. I and then you got an iPod for this? You got the, uh, I had serious. My brother and I drove cross country. Our we had a fuse blow in our car. Mm-hmm. This was in the nineties. So my brother had a Walkman, so he was able to play his Walkman. It, it shorted out the stereos. So we had no music from Sioux Falls to Vancouver to Seattle. It was like five or six days. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And our door chime in our car, so that we had the uh, stereo break, but the door chime wouldn't stop. So you heard Bing, 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 <laughs> Bing. For you know, six days straight. Chinese water drip torture. Oh my god, it was the worst. <laughs> yeah. And this is before iPods. So my brother had four hundred CDs, like two hundred of them were live dead albums. He'd want to hear like two songs and I had to get another disc and put that one in. I was a DJ for like three thousand miles. Yeah. So I had I had serious radio when I was in the lower forty eight, so that helped a lot. Um I listened to a lot of comedy stations. I listened to uh, a lot of sports talk radio in the mornings and some occasionally the news and a lot of different music and stuff. So that was really helpful. But I lost that when I got way up in the middle of nowhere. So I, I did have an iPod. I listened to some books on tape. I was really, I'm kind of lazy. Like, it's not lazy. It's more a matter of, like, all, like I just wanted to get on the road, and so I'd never spend the time that I needed to, like, download good podcasts or things like that. And so now I'm beating myself up because I'm going back and, like, listening to some of this stuff. And I was like, why didn't I listen to this on the road? Um, especially, I, I just found it recently because somebody, I don't know how I didn't know about it before, but the Dirtbag Diaries, I just love. Love the Dirtbag Diaries. And I'm just working my way very quickly through um, their archives. But, like, I don't know why I didn't listen to that. I listened to a lot of Morbis, uh, Tom Rosenbauer, uh Fishing tips, that was one thing that I did listen to regularly to make sure that I knew 
some semblance of what I was doing when I was out on the river. Yeah, I listen to a lot of Tom Rosenbauer's and itinerant anglers when I'm on the road. Yeah. So I got the steelhead trip. It looks like no one's driving with me, so I can listen to whatever I want. Yeah. Yeah. Catch up on all the old podcasts. Well, if I was there, I would come with you and I'd just draw your ear off for yeah. the whole time. I've got a room that sleeps four people. No one's really committed to any days yet. It's ten bucks a night. It's thirty four bucks a night basically. So anybody wants to join me is ten bucks. Uh, yeah, I would if it weren't for the whole flight across the nation. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, so how, how have you changed like your perspective on life? Yeah. Uh, so I, I budget things. Just you know, life is short. That, that was my thing. Was you know, life is just too short. I couldn't be cooped up all day. I had to just be outside every day, and that's when I decided to change my life for the better and fish for a living. Yeah, and so I've had a very similar experience. Um, so a, a couple of things, which is one, I didn't know that I was going to do this trip. It wasn't something I had planned for years. Um, as I mentioned, it was something that sort of happened um, and developed very spontaneously throughout the course of 2012. I mean, largely because when I started thinking, like, I want to take a trip like this, I didn't even fly fish. I fish, but I grew up in the south fishing, you know, with worms for bass and panfish. But um, for a long time, I'd always wanted to do this. I've been a workaholic my whole life. Like, I was always way too involved and too overcommitted. Excuse me. Um I, uh, you know, every summer I was working two jobs. My junior year of college, I was really involved in student government on campus. I, I slept in my office. I had a, First off, I had an office in college, and I slept in it like four or five nights a week, like just wow. killing myself, working 100 hours, you know, 100 plus hours a week, you know, doing 50 hours as a full-time job with student government stuff, doing, you know, full course load at a hard university, all, I mean, all of that stuff, and I was just killing myself. And I never had fun. I took, like, no time off. I mean, at my junior year of college, I probably went out, like, three or four times, uh, which is just ridiculous. And I, this sort of same thing happened for a long time in D.C., which was that I was really overcommitted. I was killing myself working on Capitol Hill, you know, and, I, you know, my life was planned out. You know, it was, all right, this is the year. It's January 1. Between January 1 and December 31, you'll have, like, 15 days of annual leave. You'll have 10 days of sick leave. You'll have this national holiday off and that national holiday off, and that's it. And I knew that I needed at some point to live, like, a great adventure. That I, I knew that if I hadn't taken a step back and done something that I really value, that I could look back on and say, like, hey, I, I did some really cool stuff during my day as far as adventures and travel that I'd always regret it. And um, that was a lot of the motivation for me taking this trip was that I was still young, but I was turning, I was about to turn 27 before I sort of made that decision on that hot summer night. Um, I was sort of rapidly progressing up the Washington food chain, and it was either, like, get out or... You know, just you're never going to do anything. And I looked at my parents, who are, are great people and are very adventurous themselves, and they had a lot of fun when they were younger. But, you know, they're 60 years old. They're not in the best health. My mom has had all types of, you know, knee replacements and hip replacements and 13 spinal fusions. And she just can't do the things that she physically wants to do. And they don't have the time to do it. And I didn't want to, you know, there are all these places that they want to go that they just can't go to anymore. And I didn't want that to be my life. And so I said, hey, I'm just going to go take this trip and I'll spend six months doing this. And then, you know, I'll get back to it and I'll go sort of live my life's dreams. And what happened was 
and it wasn't something that I really anticipated was that it totally changed my outlook on life and it changed, you know, my whole professional sort of focus. And so now I'm in grad school studying environmental resource management, getting a degree in something. And not to say that it's not a valuable program and a good experience and all of that, but I'm here and I'm, you know, I'm in a dorm room thinking like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like I need to be out on the road and uh, doing stuff. And so I've got a whole bunch of things that I'm working on that are kind of projects that I've got going on. You know, I'm not going to be a professional writer. I'm not going to be a professional photographer. Those won't be my full-time jobs. Um, but I'd like to do those things and continue doing those things. But, you know, the main thrust is that, um, and it was something that was really reinforced while I was out on the road, which is that there are a lot of really critical issues out there with regards to wild fish conservation. Um, you know, from issues like the mine at Chewitna to Pebble Mine to declining tarpon populations in the Florida Keys. I mean, and that's just in the U.S. I mean, it, there's really just an endless list of problems. And um, I want to dedicate my life to, you know, to helping solve some of those and protect those fish and protect those resources that we all care about. But I don't want to do it in the traditional way. I don't want to do it sitting behind a desk in Washington or in some, you know, small you know, conservation organization or nonprofit, they all do incredible work. But after being out on the road, I sort of want to be this free agent. I don't want to have 15 days off a year. I don't want to have to go to work in a suit and tie every day from nine to six. I want to dictate my own life and my own schedule. And I was fortunate to meet a lot of those people who have done things like that. And it's not that they're not working 40 hours a week. A lot of times they're working 60 hours a week. But they can still, if it's going to be a nice morning and the hatch is going off or the salmon are running or the steelhead are running, they can go and they can wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and they can go fish till 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon and then come home and put in 10, 12 hours of work. You know, that's the life that I hope to have. I don't I want to live the life of an adventurer, of somebody who can get out and see these things because being out on the road just reinforced how much is out there. I mean, I saw, I fished for six months, six days. I saw 28,220 miles worth of road, and it wasn't nearly enough. I can't tell you how many rivers I wanted to fish that I didn't fish. I drove over the Rogue River and never even stepped out of my car to take a look at it. You know, and that, I drove past... Blasphemy. The, I know. I drove past the Umpqua and did the exact same thing. I mean, but that's the thing is, like, there was six months, but, I mean, there still wasn't yeah. enough, like... You could spend six months driving around one state and still not do everything that you wanted to do and discover, you know, there's too much out there. Um, and there's never, and that's kind of the neat thing is that no matter how well-traveled you are, no matter how much you've done, there's always more. Um, and it's that that I think drives a lot of people in the fly fishing world is, it's really just this endless bounty of awesomeness. And it's something that I don't want to have 10 days a year to explore. It's something that I want to be able to explore a lot more than that. And something that I'm committed to doing. If I had a drink, I would lift it in cheese. <laughs> well, I've got one for I'll you. Take the night off. I, Do it for it. I, Do it for us. You know what? I just looked over and realized that it was all gone. There's a little bit left at the bottom there. Do you have like um, a nice strong Yukon wife you left behind? Yukon wife? Yeah. Do you mean like a woman in the Yukon and mar get married off to her? 
leave her and the kids up there? Uh, no, I did. Uh, I did have a good experience of all places in Fort McMurray, Alberta. Uh, High five. Uh, we will. Well, that's more of a story that's better for offline than it is for online. But uh, yeah, it, that is the one downside of being a traveling fly fisherman. You spend a lot of times with dudes with beards and not a lot of time <laughs> in places that you know are uh, are good places to to meet women. So. Tell you one. I got picked up by a woman after a week of albacore fishing. Yeah, and sleeping in the car. Oh, she's like, "Where's your car?" And I'm like, "Why?" She's like, "I'm taking you home." <laughs> That's about all I remember. But I was like, "Man, I, I go out to bars. You know, I'll, I'll shave and put on like a pair of starched shirt and some nice slacks and nothing. And then I come back smelling like the beach and and chum. And this woman's like, "All right." I was like, man, my approach has been all wrong this time. Yeah, yeah, it's. It was kind of funny because, um, you know, coming from the D.C. world, I definitely had that approach to things. And, you know, that's one of the things that I have found is sort of a truism with women is that the more you look for them, the less you find them. The less you look for yeah. them, the more you find them. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, who knows? Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm back in college now. So things are looking up. College boy. <laughs> It's, and the fishing in Ireland's got to be tough. It's all you got to pay by the beat. Yeah, so it's um, it's been a, a tough transition. Um, you know, I didn't fish every day. I was on the road. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, working and writing and, and doing that stuff, and a lot of time driving. And so it wasn't like every day I was fishing, but it was rare for me to go more than you know three days without fishing. And a lot of times I'd find places where I'd go and it's fishing you know, four or five days in a row. And uh, it's actually been one month to the day since the last time I fished, and I am going crazy. Um, August 24th was the second to last day of my trip. I went fishing with my buddy Josh Preston, um, who now works for Cabela's, um, Corporate Cabela's down in Nebraska. And we went out, and we found this little tiny um, small stream. And uh, it was it was just a, it was a pretty neat end to the trip because, and this is a, a whole sort of fun story as well, but... Um, the previous fish, that, the last fish I caught prior to that was the most incredible fish I've ever caught, hands down. Biggest fish I've ever caught, but most incredible for so many different reasons. And I went from catching, you know, 20-pound fish to, you know, 20-gram fish. I mean, these things were tiny, these little tiny trout. But we were on this beautiful, classic little small stream in Nebraska fishing two weights. Um, and... Uh, caught a bunch of these little really hungry fish on dry flies and it was just awesome it was uh, i i just seen the uh the video that uh, nick and cammy had done about um i can't remember the title shenandoah yeah. national park one yeah the shenandoah that was awesome yeah i saw that yeah. and i was like i didn't fish any small streams i mean i fished smaller water but i never fished small streams like that over my trip and so i saw that you know, when I was talking to my buddy Josh, I mean, in Nebraska, it's not known as trout heaven by any stretch of the imagination. And I was, he was like, well, what do you want to fish for? And I was like, oh, dude, I got to go out and I got to fish some small streams. Do you have any around? And so we went out and we had this awesome day out in the water. But um, so that was a month ago. That was, that was the last time I went a line. And uh, I've been trying to get the hang of things here. I mean, first was that just moving here and getting things like a bank card and a cell phone and all of that stuff has taken way longer than I would have liked it to. And, um, and I'm used to having really helpful fly shops where um, it was one of the things from my trip that I learned that like people like, 
go to your fly shops, treat your fly shops well, and they will treat you well. I learned so many things from these fly shops. I would just walk in, tell them what I was doing, and, you know, I had people even take me out from some of the shops, but, um, you know, they tell me where to go, what flies to use, all that stuff, and I've I've yet to find a really good fly shop here. That's my goal tomorrow is I have a short day of classes, so I'm going to bike into town and, and do some searching. But uh, the salmon and trout season ends this weekend, the 30th. And after that, it doesn't open again until January. So it's going to be a little rough. There's some really good pike fishing here, but you got to have a boat for it, and they're going to be deep this time of year. There's really good coarse fishing, or what they call coarse fishing, which are things like perch, and they have carp as well. And so it's going to take a little bit of exploration. It's going to be a hard couple of months, but um, I'm continuing my project in Ireland, and Upstream Journey goes Irish. It's a lot less exciting thus far since I haven't managed to fish, but I'm going to be blogging for Orvis still. Um, I can't thank them enough for that opportunity, and they're working with me to help make some inroads here in Ireland. And hopefully I'd really – I mean, Ireland is a really fascinating um, – and I guess I just gave away, or we both gave away where I am, so that, that guess where Paul is is out the window. But uh, I think we probably gave too many hints earlier anyway with talking about Guinness. But um, the uh, Ireland is really fascinating because – of all of countries in Europe, it's the least tightly managed as far as private water and as expensive beats. Um, and so it is much more accessible. It's still a far cry from Alaska where you can spend $145, get a year license as an out-of-state you know, person, and go and fish anywhere. Um, it's still, you know, it's, it's tough from that, but as far as other places like Scotland or Sweden, I've never fished any of those places, but I've heard it's a lot tighter. And so um, it's going to be an interesting challenge, um, but I'm hopefully going to be working, uh, trying to get some stuff set up here through the Department of Tourism to travel around and fish and have a lot more accessibility. I mean, part of the challenge is mobility. I don't have a car, so I've, I've traded in my, my car for a bus pass and a bike. Uh, so it'll be a lot more kind of fish where you are stuff, but been scouting out some things, but uh, the the really fascinating thing from an environmental standpoint, and, and as I was getting to before, before I went all circuitous and non-direction there, is that part of the reason I wanted to come to Ireland in the first place is that um, the urban waters and their water resource management in Ireland is so much more sophisticated than what we have in the States. Um, it's You can walk through an urban stream here and not see any trash any pollution, not smell any human effluent, like, and have healthy trout populations in an urban environment. Wow. Um, and so what I'm hoping to explore and is to tie, and do is tie in some of the aspects of my academic background here, studying environmental resource management, with really getting a grasp on what they do here in Ireland to manage and preserve urban streams. And so... Um, I'll be spending a lot of time, hopefully, out, you know, in beautiful places, fishing for salmon and things like that. But there are a lot of really neat streams that are in some of these major cities, and I hope to spend some time fishing them as well and and being able – I mean, I was talking to a guy who was actually a cab driver the other day who um, he said he caught a six-pound brown trout in this urban stream that flows, like, right through the city. That's pretty awesome that you can do that. 
Yeah, they, they've that. got something going on special there yeah. if you can do that. I mean, that's not every fish, but the fact that even one of those exists, I mean, good luck to a brown trout in a four-mile run, right? Right. If it's a brown trout, it's probably a piece of poop. <laughs> yeah, so. The old term, stocking the pond with brown trout when you go to the toilet. <laughs> that's why people, you know, the the carp guys, the, the joke is they use corn because there's so much corn that comes out of the plant. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I had never heard that before. But, yeah, there's there's supposedly as good carp fishing. I mean, I can't walk by any of these rivers or creeks and things and not look down there. I still haven't seen any, but hopefully I, I haven't had time. I've been so immersed in moving here and getting everything set up, you know, sort of trying to get my bearings and also still wrapping up my trip. I still have a couple more stories to write, including what will be my, my favorite story for my trip. Um, and, uh, and sort of getting everything going, but, but hopefully here in the next couple of days, weeks, I'll be able to kind of get into the fishing mode a little bit more. I've got, I brought nine fishing rods and two pairs of waders, three pairs of boots. And so it was a huge, and two tents. So it was a huge haul getting everything through. I had like $200 in overage fees and I couldn't, I literally brought so much outdoor gear. My, my, school clothes and all of that stuff was like this tiny little bag but i brought so much wear your waiters to class yeah i brought i brought so much outdoor gear that i literally like i'm not the strongest man in the world but i can pick stuff up i i I literally couldn't hold yet alone carry all of my bags at once so it's pretty pretty pathetic my my room is just absolutely stocked with fishing gear and fly tying gear one of actually my biggest frustrations was that i um I didn't bring any of my fly tying feathers because I was told that when you fly into Europe, they will confiscate all of them. But apparently Irish security is much more lax and they never, never check. So I've got to go restock all of my feathers and things. So we could put a TPFR kit together for you. Uh, I wouldn't refuse that. Yeah, maybe we'll bring that up at the next meeting. All right. I'll... And since you left me, we've outgrown the Irish pub. We're at Whitlow's now. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty big yeah that was right before i left dan had taken me there and showed me that that they had set that up and really jealous i uh it's it's kind of funny um you know sometimes you never think about you know like the value of what you had until you left it and you know it's easy and and sort of going to the point of urban lines right is like you know when i was frustrated at work or bored or you know, just needed to get away mentally. I, you know, watch fly fishing films. I watch, you know, people stalking elusive cutthroats in Yellowstone or huge steelhead in British Columbia or wherever. And you always wanted to be out in those places. But, you know, I was out in Oregon, Washington, just swinging for steelhead and having no luck and reading these TPFR reports of these, you know, 50, 60, 70 fish shad days. And I was talking to my friends from back in D.C. And what I wouldn't have done to be able to have one day of shad fishing at that point out on the you know, the Potomac, one of the most endangered bodies of water anywhere in the world rather than some of these pristine streams in Oregon, just so I could hook into a fish and actually get a bend in my rod. Uh, you know, it's, it's so uh, you guys have some did, great stuff going on there. Did Dave Constantine tell you about the snakehead snaggers we saw that day we were out shad fishing? No, he didn't tell me about that. Uh, this guy had like a frame pack and he just snagged like eight 30 inch snakeheads and just put them in his backpack and walked off. We're just like, what the heck is going on? Uh, gotten a little bit of Alaska in D.C. then. 
Yeah. How is he standing? Uh, so, was he like flipping? Uh, like a treble hook huh. on like a stick. I don't remember. Just there were so many different types of snaggers this year. It was nuts. Just huge like salmon nets that when they come up to breathe, they would just scoop them up. Oh, okay. Um, so women in Ireland versus women in the Yukon, who got better accents? And I, dude, I didn't really spend much time in the Yukon. Uh, it was all just passed through. Um, I was uh, I was pretty much you know just driving, sleeping in my car, or getting gas when I was there. Women in Ireland have awesome accents, and I was actually just talking to some of my friend, my Irish friends about this today. I'm I'm generally pretty good with accents, and I am brutal at the Irish accent. I can't do it at all, and so it's always frustrating because I'm trying to imitate you know people or tell stories to people back home, and I I just do such a horrible Ireland Irish like. <laughs> accent it's just so bad that it's embarrassing so i can't even do it but i i do uh the irish girls have great accents uh i will tell you a an untapped resource of both accent awesomeness and just general craziness on the girl front that i learned while i was in canada i haven't been there but i really want to go is newfoundland i think from the small cross-section i have seen i think Girls in Newfoundland may be even more fun and outgoing and uh, a fan of the drink than some of the Irish ladies I've met thus far. Wow. Yeah, they have they have a reputation. They're called crazy noobs. Uh, and these are also more conversations that would be better for offline than <laughs> online. But... Uh, the uh, some of the ones I met, just the stories that you hear from them, you literally just are jaw dropping. I was I was hanging out with one of them, and she was telling me the story, and this is when I was up in Fort McMurray, and I literally just I had to Skype one of my friends because he's always full of funny stories, and I was like, you have to you have to tell Ori the story, and so he got on there, and he was literally just blown away. <laughs> Like, he had nothing to say except for, like, that I had reached hero status that night by even hanging out with somebody who was that insane and ridiculous. So, Newfoundland, that's the spot. Yeah. And they also and have salmon runs there, so we'll have to go check them yeah. out. I always wanted to marry a woman with a really cool accent. I ended up marrying a, a Russian woman who was raised in the Midwest. So, I mean, the most you get is she calls soda pop. <laughs> I'm like, that's not exotic at all. My dad always said you got to marry a... A Scottish Jew. I'm like, I don't think those exist, Dad. Uh, no, but I have met my fair share of Jews over in Ireland. None of them are actually Scottish, but for some uh, reason, I've met a bunch of them. But yeah, no, I'm a I'm a fan of uh, of the Canadian girls. That's hmm. that's my um they my once again you know it's a brief cross section, but one they do have a little bit of that sort of cute Canadian accent depending on where they come from. Um, but more importantly, is they're generally speaking more outdoorsy and really easygoing, laid back, good natured people. I'm trying to get Ashley Ray. She does the blog. She loves to fish. I'm trying to get her to do a podcast, but man, that that chick fishes like hardcore nuts every day. The post, the pictures she posts on social media are nuts. I think I've heard of her. I'm looking her up. Right yeah, now. She, she did a uh, what is she, she did a show on like the fly fishing network that I don't get WFN, like catching Atlantic salmon, and I think Newfoundland. So I can ask. What, yeah, she she lives on like like Ashley Ray R A E. She's like the face of Hobie. Like it, I cast like her face is is like the Hobie catalog. Huh. 
And she catches everything. Like, she just got back from somewhere catching, like, 40-pound catfish. They were huge. It took, like, two people to hold them in the boat. So. Huh. Yeah, no. I'll have to give that a look. Yeah, I mean, and that's Canada. So, I mean, Canada is a little bit of, like, a cross between the U.S. and, depending on where you are in Canada, some places are a lot easier. But Canada is a little bit, um, is much more regulated in a lot of places. And so fishing there can be tough, like, I went up when I went and did that Nova Scotia trip. Like we, I wanted to fish in some of the really famed waters in New Brunswick, uh, the Miramichi, I think it's called, up in northern New Brunswick. And um, you can't even fish it without a guide. Um, and so even just to say, like, hey, I'm passing through and I want to pull over and fish for a day, I mean, you're looking at a couple hundred bucks, uh, which is a bit of a bummer. But, I mean, there's some really incredible fishing in Alberta. Unfortunately, I didn't get to do any of it. <laughs> um, the uh, When I was there, the it was when they had those major floods on the Bow River. And so I was planning to spend, like, a week fishing in the Banff area and fishing the Bow, and it was just blown out really, really badly. So... I mean, the, the whole area was flooded. It wasn't just, like, runoff and things were blown out. I mean, it was epic floods there. So uh, I didn't get to fish there, and I didn't fish at all in the Yukon. Um, but I did fish, did get to spend one day fishing in Steelhead Paradise in B.C., and I will be getting back there as soon as I possibly can. Very cool. Yeah. All right, so what time is it where you are right now? Uh, 1.40 a.m. Oh, my gosh. All right, well... um. Should probably start wrapping this up. Yeah. I see you got someone else to talk to. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, any any last minute words of wisdom to people that want to do like an epic road trip journey uh, around fly fishing? Yeah. Well, first off, feel free to contact me. Uh, you can email me at uh, easiest to say is just upstreamjourney at gmail dot com. So feel free to to email me. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. Um, I mean, it's it's something that. I definitely advise anybody to do. You know, I was I was lucky um, to be able to do it, and really fortunate to have the support that I had. Um, but even if it's, it doesn't have to be six months. It doesn't have to be, you know, traveling twenty eight thousand miles across the U.S. or you know, going to remote places, you know, in the middle of you know Central America or Kamchatka or whatever it is. You don't. It doesn't need to be this epic adventure. Um, because the reality is that you can make something epic out of something so simple and that would otherwise seem mundane. And so um, just go for it would be the thing. I mean, I've, I've talked to a lot of people. I mean, and one of the things that was – it's been one of the nicer parts of my trip and something that, you know, I just feel a lot of personal gratification about is that, um, you know, I've met so many people over the course of my trip who were like, man, that's such a, you know, it's such a great experience. I wish I would have done something like that. You know, but I mean, there's so many people who, when you tell somebody you're on a six month fishing trip, fishing from Florida to Alaska, pretty much everybody <laughs> says, like, I wish I could have done that. I wish I could do something like that. But the reality is that most people can do that. It's just a matter of choosing to do it. And it's not easy I mean, I can look back on it now and say, like, yeah, I did it. But it was really hard to quit my job, to break up <laughs> with the girl I was dating, to leave the dog, to do all those things and just hit the road. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not a big solo adventurer. I've, I've never, before I left on this trip, I had camped for one night by myself. 
Um, and so it was like a really big leap of faith. Um, and I wasn't a good, I would say I wasn't even a good fly fisherman when I left. Um, I was pretty novice and, um, you know, inexperienced, but just go out and do it and you won't regret it regardless of how it turns out, regardless, you, you know, of all, of what can transpire. I mean, you, you won't regret taking the opportunity to do something that you'll love and appreciate forever. And, um, as much as you think you'll appreciate it and as much as you think you'll gain from it when you leave, it's so much more. Um, you know, I spent my whole life doing what I was supposed to do, going to college, getting good jobs, you know, applying for scholarships, getting involved, you know, whatever it was. And it was when I basically said, screw it, I'm going fishing, that I ended up having the, having the most important experience in my life, but also having the most professionally transformative experience in my life as well. Fantastic. So, uh, if I ever get out to Ireland while you're there, I will definitely uh, buy you a Tina Turner. <laughs> well, I'm only here for the year. So I'm here until it's a little unclear at this point. Um, June, July. Uh, I, I like it here a lot, but I'm eager to hit the road again. And um, So I'm going to try to skate out of here as early as possible and work on my thesis while camping out in British Columbia or Alaska or Colorado or wherever. So uh, you'll have to hopefully meet me somewhere soon. We'll get out. We never fished together, which is obscene. obscene. Yeah. I never fished with any of you guys, with Dan or Trent. It's kind of nuts. I I just fished with Dan for the first time ever at the Snakehead tournament. Wait, are you serious? And I wasn't even like, I didn't really fish with them. We were like, I never saw him fishing, but yeah, I don't think I've ever fished with Dan. How is that before. possible? <laughs> I don't know. It's different schedules. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. He just had another kid. Yeah. Yeah, I saw the photos of him out with his kid. Yeah. Doing the, uh, doing the Davala initiation. So, mm -hmm. but, uh, well, we'll have to, we'll have to chat offline and we'll figure out a time. Um, uh, Ireland would be ideal. Obviously we can get out, we can chase some salmon, drink some Guinness, but, uh, if not then, then we'll have to figure out something somewhere along the road. Fantastic. All right, and good luck in case I don't talk to you. Catch you yeah, thanks guys. so much for joining us. Dude, no, it was a real pleasure. And I honestly, uh, you know, um, this, this will be the last thing that I'll say, because I know I've rambled on for, I think, Skype says an hour and 40 minutes now, so I apologize. Yeah. Um, hey, we, we, uh, I nicked you away from Rosenbauer. He hasn't gotten you on the podcast yet, right? No, I was supposed to do it with him. Oh, yeah. But uh, he, uh, well, here's the one caveat, which is that apparently he cares more about production value than he than you do, because he wouldn't want he didn't want to do it on Skype. Right. So I'm gonna give him a call from a landline when I get back to the states over winter. Um, but um, so I I can't. I mean, and I say this, and, and I mean this in all honesty. I wouldn't have gone on this trip if it weren't for TPFR. And for you and for Dan and all these other people, you know, I started fishing and it was something yeah, I started in August 2011 and it was something I really enjoyed and something I pursued. But it wasn't until I came in to the Orbit shop and met Dan and got hooked in with TPFR that I really got sort of set more on this track. Um, you know, I, I, you taught me how to tie flies. I didn't tie all my flies on my trip. A lot of it was because there are local variations and such and I didn't have the time at points but you know i tied 
you know, some of the most incredible fish I've caught in my life were tied on flies that, uh, you know, you basically, you and Dan gave me the skills to do and uh, help foster my love and appreciation for the sport. And you know, I spent three and a half years living in D.C. without ever fishing there because I was a, you know, whatever fisherman. And as soon as I started fly fishing and as soon as I came in to the shop, met you guys uh totally transform my experience in dc but transform my life so can't thank you guys enough for that and on that note to anybody who's listening most important thing you can do on a day-to-day basis is just try to get out there to go to your local fly shops not be afraid to ask questions to get involved with your local clubs whether they're a casting club or a conservation club to make friends don't be afraid to put yourself out there you know get out and fish with people and just you know, it's it's a much more accessible sport than people make it off, out to. It's all a matter of initiative, and um, and and there's so many people out there like Rob and like Dan and like others who want to help you out. So just get out, meet them, and go fish. Fantastic. All right, well, let's leave it with that. All right, cheers. Thanks, buddy. I'm gonna go for myself another one and smash work. <laughs> all right. All right. Take care. See ya, buddy. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.